Hey, if you're listening to this, you probably have heard of our new software, Trust Driven Care. Now, that's the new version of what we used to call Clinic Gym Connect. But Trust Driven Care is our new software and education, and it's all about helping to grow your office through building trust with your patients and your members. One great feature that we added in this go-round was the ability to add membership sites. Now, what are membership sites? Membership sites are places where you can hold your own video courses that you offer to people in your marketing programs, or maybe you have a certain coursework on nutrition you want to give every single patient who comes in for a new patient exam. These membership courses can be so powerful, but what the software does is it limits who's in there and who has access to all the material just through a simple email address. So you have to have their information. They have to be registered with you to log in. If you've ever used something like Kajabi or Thinkific or Learnistic, it's very similar to that. We wanted to add them in so everyone can see the benefit of those and grow their practice through sharing that information with their patients and their members. And those patients and members will grow and build their trust and probably refer their friends and family. So really it works out. But if you want to have a membership course or as many as you want, there's no limit to how many you can have, then check out Trust Driven Care. It includes that as one of the great features that we think will help build trust with your patients, grow your audience, grow your impact in your community, and create more raving fans. So go ahead and check it out at trustdrivencare.com. Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. This is Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm excited for you to be on this journey. Look, when I started my Clinic Gym Hybrid back in 2013, I didn't have a place to go for resources. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're here. I hope you dig this interview. Let's jump in. Boom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I am your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Rich Ohm. Rich, what is going on, my main man? Just uh, pumped to have a chat. We haven't, you and I haven't chatted since. Man, I mean, we had a nice, a really, really nice dinner when I was at, uh, speaking at Perform Better a couple of years back in Long Beach, and we had Dan Leonard there and a couple other superstars that was sitting outside in California. It was great. Yeah, it was wonderful. It's been a while. Uh, pandemic happened. All kinds of pre-pandemic, stuff. Pre-pandemic, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, Rich, uh, your your kind of practice and your uh, your website, blog, all that stuff is uh, athlete enhancement. And but I know you are a practicing chiropractor as well. So, kind of give me give all the listeners a background on kind of how you approach things and and where you where you started addressing athletes. Yeah, so I actually became a physician really because I wanted to understand more about performance, um, the human body, and all that kind of stuff. I was a strength coach. I was lucky enough to be trained by, uh, I mean, one of the best track coaches ever. His name is Judd Logan, four-time Olympian. And he kind of gave me front door or back door access to Charles Poliquin, Louis Simmons, I mean, all of whom we've lost, including Judd <laughs> uh, recently. But these you know, back in the nineties, these were sort of like superstars at strength training. And so, you know, as this hardworking kid, I got to sit there and, you know, be in, in these gyms with these amazing legendary coaches. And that just kind of got my, you know, my, uh, the gears churning and I wanted to sort of get into that. And I went into coaching for a while, trained for a couple Olympic trials. And then I was, I realized that I wanted to know more about the body. This is pre- full-blown internet where you can just hop on and get an app and learn about a bunch of stuff and all that kind of thing. And so I decided to go back to school. I was actually training a chiropractor at the time who was a big ART guy. And I, uh, he suggested that I kind of look into being a chiropractor. And so I kind of jumped, jumped the line, so to speak, or jumped ship and became a physician. 
Now, I say that because everything that I ever do, whether it's with a normal person or whether it's with an elite athlete, I'm always sort of like thinking about it in terms of performance enhancement. So that could be they want to be able to pick up their kid without pain, or they want to get out of the car without pain, or that could be that they want to throw a 100-mile fastball or squat four times body weight, whatever it is. I'm kind of looking at it like a strength coach uh, going in there and trying to address you know some of the causative factors. And then the fun part uh, is a lot of times when I when I have those athletes, I get to do stuff that I, I think is probably right up your your alley here. And that is where you're going sort of beyond the treatment room. And now you're doing more strength work, capacity work. Because if I've got somebody that, you know, they get low back pain, if they're doing high volume squats, or they're doing high volume swings, and, you know, they feel fine otherwise, well, then I have to be doing a bunch of capacity work with them so that they can actually you know, execute or, or perform in whatever environment they need to without having low back pain or shoulder pain or, or whatever the case may be. I like it. I mean, that's right up, right up our alley as far as blending the clinic and the gym. And, you know, there are many reasons to do that. One of which is, you know, a lot of these people who are high performers aren't, don't just want pain relief. They want something else they want. Cause I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I can remember hurting myself uh, and all my pain, my low back pain was gone. But as I knew in my heart, there's no way I could get back under a, a heavy squat bar. Like there was no pain, but I knew I couldn't load it and I wouldn't perform. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people that hit that. And the other side of the coin is if you are a strength coach or you have a strength coach background, the amount of impact you can have if you have a bare bones amount of clinical skills, you don't have to be a superstar. Uh, but a bare bones amount of therapeutic skills is incredible what that can unlock as far as potential in, uh, in the weight room. So, Oh, for sure. I think for sure. I mean, um, Ken Crenshaw down at Arizona Diamondbacks, his whole strength training staff, they all have to go and become massage therapists so that they're licensed to put their hands on the athletes. So when they're working with the athletes, every single person on that team, whether it's a primary strength coach or it's a medical doctor not only knows the, the lifting stuff, but they are actually licensed to be able to put their hands on, on the athletes, which is amazing. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, one thing I've learned along the path too is uh, for any, anybody listening out there, a lot of times the, the assessments and tests and things that we think are just kind of like, oh, that was, you know, that was a second year of chiropractic college. Or that was physical exam skills or whatever it is, you know, like those things in the right environment can give you so much information as to what to program or not to program uh, in, in a strength program. So uh, an easy example, I think everybody can kind of think of is like, if you have a positive Kemp's test, that is like one of the easiest tests to perform, right? If I just put you into unilateral extension, how it hurts. Okay, cool. So if we want to avoid that, like what, Maneuver, what moves should you avoid in the in the uh, weight room immediately if somebody is positive in Kemp? So if extension produces their pain, what should you avoid or what should you use as a marker for improvement? And uh, painful extension is there. So I would say if they're doing a crappy version of a plank, then like, hey, that's not the, in my opinion, that's not the appropriate exercise for them at that moment if they're already in pain going into that plank or into extension. And then the second question is, what the hell can you do to change it? <laughs> like right now. Yeah, it's um, it's funny that you bring up extension. Um, you know, I I I think that in the strength training industry, you know, at large, they overemphasize the posterior chain. 
And I was just writing a blog this morning talking about um, overactivity of the posterior chain and how it can cause all kinds of problems. So in the strength training world, oftentimes we use what I call an extension compression stabilizing strategy, which is essentially overactive posterior chain. Or think of it as that the posterior chain is, is, is overpowering the other muscles involved with stabilizing the spine. Now, this happens for a bunch of reasons. You know, one is we tend to bias exercises for it. So we're doing lots of bilateral hip hinging, squatting and RDLs and good mornings and swings and cleans and snatches and so on and so forth. Um, two is that the, it does actually work in the short term. So because it works, coaches and athletes both tend to favor you know, cues and technical adjustments that bias for the, the posterior chain. The biggest example being either sit back on your heels when you're doing a squat or butt back chest up. In that case, you know, you could also use the, you know, the, the lats, contract the lats and try to basically squish your spine into extension. Now, nobody that nobody says squish your spine into extension, but that's what you're doing. And so you're extending your spine, compressing the facet joints in the back. And then when you overload the posterior chain, you're adding a massive amount of axial compression to the spine. And then that causes all kinds of problems, lots of discogenic pain. So the first thing I would do if we're talking about somebody that has a positive KEMPS is I would basically teach them how to stabilize in a way where they don't overutilize the posterior chain that brings their spine into extension. So I could, you might think, oh, well, I'm just going to avoid good mornings or I'm going to avoid squats or hinges or anything. Well, you can, and that's fine. Um, <clears throat> But I would actually go after their stabilizing strategy first and see, okay, can you actually do this? Like I had a guy in town, the guy here from Westside Barbell that had trouble doing RDLs and he had had some, some back issues and we were working on it. He just couldn't really do RDLs. Now they use a ton of extension compression there, but we basically just went in and taught him how to properly pressurize his spine so that he's able to, or his abdomen, so that he's able to drive that spine, push it back into a neutral position. And it's actually the intradominal pressure that keeps the spine out of pathological extension. So if you have someone with Kemp's, they probably have, you know, some sort of maybe discogenic stuff. Maybe they have some hot facets or whatever. But if you can teach them how to pressurize their abdomen, now they're able to execute a movement like a bilateral hip hinge, but in a way that doesn't drive their spine into hyperextension. And that happens all day long in strength training. I mean, it is like literally pandemic to use a really bad pun, but a pandemic problem at any gym you go into if it's a powerlifting gym, CrossFit gym, Olympic weightlifting, you will see this extension compression stabilizing strategy everywhere, like all over the place. I think uh, an analogy might be for everybody listening, bacon. That's my analogy, bacon. Because I don't know, about five or 10 years ago, people started like falling in love with bacon and like adding it to everything. And it's a really lazy way to make almost anything better. Like, hey, Wrap asparagus and bacon. Hey, it's add like bacon butter to your, and flour. Butter and flour. Yeah. Yeah. Like add bacon to your Brussels sprouts. Oh, I love Brussels sprouts. Like, do you like them without bacon? No, but blah blah. But and and for the most part, bacon does improve almost every dish that it touches. Right? It's better on a burger. It's better in Brussels sprouts. Cool. It's just like that extension. Like early on, almost everybody will respond to that. Right? Like like there's it's pretty rare to okay. have somebody that's like not going to get better if you focus on the posterior chain. But at some point, it's like we can't keep adding bacon and think things are going to keep improving. We have to learn how to actually cook here. <laughs> yeah, more right? more bacon is not always the answer. 
yeah, as some people might be throwing their phone away going, hey, I'm never listening to the podcast again. But yeah, more mm-hmm. bacon's not the answer, but it does certainly enhance things and it does start breaking through. But that's when you need to get to the point where you understand what's going on and understand the whole picture about programming instead of just saying like, okay, hey, double up the amount of bacon, right? Like that's just not going to help. So like with your well, guy from West requires- Barbell, he was yeah, at peak bacon amount. You know, he had already, you had titrated his bacon perfectly. And now it was what's next? Yeah, I mean, the, it require, it's actually kind of challenging because it requires a lot of knowledge of the whole process for the, on the strength coach well, or, or the, you know, the physician working with the programming because there is a, an immediate sort of like reward to using cues like, oh, butt back, chest up, or keep your chest up, sit back on your heels, sit back on your heels and push your knees out. There's all these sort of like tricks that you can use that will maybe you know, have them get a successful lift that day. But then, I mean, we could talk about all the things that can an extension, compression, stabilizer strategy can cause anywhere from just movement blocks. Like it's that mainly causes a butt wink. So it's going to make squatting below parallel much more challenging if you're stabilizing like that. And that also obviously is going to indirectly cause, you know, you know, disc problems and facet problems and all kinds of stuff. So you have to actually know like long term, like, oh, okay, well, we need them to be able to express these movements or have, you know, this kind of metabolic capacity or, or these kind of strength numbers you know, in six months, in, in, in two years. I mean, we used to program in four-year blocks when I was training for the Olympics. And so you really have to think long-term. And if you think long-term, you're able to be a little bit more um, patient and precise about what you're doing. You don't have to just, you know, have the clock running. We're like, oh my God, I got to get, you know, all this super heavy stuff right now. It's like, no, 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 no. I need to sort of stay with this and keep the form good. But it still requires a coach that knows what a proper movement strategy looks like, what a solid brace looks like. And they're not influenced by the fact that the athlete, you know, cheated into hyperextension and got the lift that day. They're like, oh, okay, cool. You just got, you know, let's say that their squat went from 480 to 500 that day. A smart coach would be like, cool, you got 500, but we're going to keep your max at 480 because you didn't do it with a good pattern. Donnie Thompson, who's a, one of the best powerlifters of all time, he told me that. He said that if they, I mean, and he was breaking world records in his mid forties, right? He's my, he's my, he's my idol, um, being in my mid forties training for uh, the kettlebell workout sinister. But um, he said, if you actually, if they got a big lift in the weight room and they're training, but it didn't look good, there's too much shaking, or they shifted to one side, or their knees came in, or their back you know, they lost their position, they didn't change their max. So that meant for the next training block, be it six weeks, 12 or 18 weeks, whatever it was, they're still hitting the same max. And so the percentages don't really change that much. And that's brilliant because that's him understanding that like, no, 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 you have to be able to execute these with high quality movements. And so even if you're able to quote unquote, you know, bring the bar down to your chest and then straighten your arms out. Okay, you got the wrap. He doesn't count that unless the actual quality of the movement is good. And that's brilliant. And that's something that I think clinicians, um, you know, should, should be, kind of be aware of. And certainly more the, the strength coaches are going to have more of that proclivity to sort of push the athlete harder and harder and harder. When in reality, you know, you just want to, you know, stay consistent and stay diligent over for over time so that they can be productive over a longer time period and not just try to get as strong as possible, as fast as possible. 
Yeah, I think you bring up a, a ton of, of great points. Going back to, uh, well, this is one of the reasons, you know, we say all the time, like in our live events and in our webinars and stuff, if you're going to be a great clinician and blend these two, you need an encyclopedic knowledge of exercises. Like you need to know a bunch of them because I think that anybody that has ever told me, oh, this, I do this, this exercise works every time with so-and-so, or this, this works every time with people with facet pain. I'm like, yeah, you just haven't worked with enough people. Like I have never found one where it doesn't work every time. Like there is no exercise that works every time uh, in my experience. However, uh, I think having a a distributed, like a, a, a wide ranging list and then seeing other providers or other experts use other ex- certain exercise that you may have thrown away at some point as a great exercise for a certain uh, a population is incredibly rewarding and stimulating to your mind. Like when would you use, um, I'm trying to think of a good one. A lunge uh, instead of a squat. Yeah. There you go. Perfect. Very simple. Yeah. When would you lose a, a lunge in, instead of a squat? And two, back when we had dinner at Perform Better, I remember sitting through your presentation and you had a, a, if I remember right, a video of a guy that was doing a, um, he's either a lunge or your front foot elevated split squat and had a huge shift on one side. And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the other. I won't call him out. What's that? Yeah. He was a 450 pound back squatter and yeah. he had just, I mean, you know, and my mom could, could look at that and be like, wow, that right hip looks really bad. I mean, yeah, it doesn't require. It Gary Gray or Pavel Collage to be able to identify that guy's movement dysfunction. And, you know, that that's, I mean, that's when we, that's a rabbit hole that we go into like with, with the lunch, but I like your point where, you know, you want to have a battery of exercises. And if you know, kind of the goal, whether it's a, a functional goal, like in terms of quality of movement, or it's more of a strength or a performance goal. So metabolics, you know, expression or whatever, then you can actually stay on task. And depending on what the the goal for the day was, you can then modify the movement to potentially avoid an injury. And, you know, if you're like, okay, well, today it's all about anaerobic, you know, intervals. And so I I need to get their heart rate, you know, into their anaerobic threshold. And I was going to use the rower but their their back is bothering them, so I'm going to put them on the assault bike because it's 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 better on the back. It's not exactly the same, but I'm still able to get you know their cardiovascular system pumping into in, into their anaerobic threshold, and so you can still accomplish the goal. It's a little bit more challenging if you start getting into training the nervous system because it's a little bit more finicky and it's a little and it, it responds very quickly. So if you're getting close to the end of a of a, a competition or coming sorry close to a competition changing the workout pretty violently actually throws off their nervous system. And then you can maybe lose velocity on the ball, or maybe they just have the same velocity, but less control. Um, and there's some issues that you can run into, but I, I think that having a battery of exercise, like a wide variety of exercises and having the knowledge of like, all right, well, what is the, the intent of today's training? You're able to sort of modify the movements so that you can tailor it to that athlete or that that client so that they're able to, you know, finish the workout and not get injured, which is kind of the name of the game. You know, I always used to tell my athletes, you're no good to me injured. Because they'll be yeah. like, well, why are you, why, you know, you told me I had to do six sets and now you're only telling me to do three. And I'm like, yeah, you look like shit. So we're not going to have do three extra shitty sets and potentially risk, you know, hurting your back or your shoulder or something. So I think it's important yeah. that the the coach or the the therapist they understand 
you know, like you said, a, a little bit of medical side or a little bit of strength training so that you're able to have a battery of exercises that you can tweak and, and modulate as they're going through the workouts. Yeah. I think, uh, going back to what you just said too, about like, uh, you're no good to be injured. A great business plan for a young clinician listening would also be, Hey, I would take people who are injured and work with them until they're not injured and also strong. Like if you were just known in your area as the person to work with injured athletes and all of a sudden they become strong without re-injury, you would probably make a pretty good name for yourself. I have a feeling that yeah. the, uh, those folks over at Westside like Rich because he, he probably never says take four to six weeks off, which is the most, the laziest. Lose an and, athlete immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and a coach who has 20 athletes, right? Like, but it's also the laziest method of orthopedic uh, uh, care, right? Like, Hey, just take your insults, your insult rate down to zero and things will get better. It's like, that's called natural healing, jackass. Like you don't need to go to med school to figure that one out. Like, yeah. And it, it comes back. So it's just like, yeah. if you go back to your same volume, if you haven't addressed, you know, if we want to get into, you know, I think it's important to dig into what I call causative factors and I break them into internal and external causative factors. So if somebody comes in and let's say it's an athlete and they got low back pain, uh, okay, well, they get back pain. Let's just keep it simple. They have it with a butt wink at the bottom of a squat. Cool. So their internal factors might be they're using an extension compression stabilizing strategy. It might be, you know, that they've got um, limited passive range of motion of hip flexion. It might be that they have uh, tight calves or limited dorsiflexion. Cool. Those are all internal factors. If we can improve those internal factors, they're going to be able to execute the squat with a better pattern that may not provoke pain. But then there also might be external factors like, oh, it's a truck driver and they sit for long periods of time or, you know, they're, you know, a weekend warrior. And, and during the week, they're doing, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day just sitting at a desk. Okay, well, let's get them a standing desk or let's get them, get them out of their chair. Let's get them doing some other exercises. So there's, you got to look at what are the causative factors, whether it's a normal Joe, you know, the likes to, to exercise or it's a professional athlete, there are always internal and external causative factors that are contributing to this, uh, this case and this pathology. And if you don't address those and you just say, take four to six weeks off, okay, cool. Well, then you're to go back and you're sitting for eight hours a day and you're doing your lifting and you'll feel great for, you know, a month, two months, three months, maybe six months. But at some point, that tissue is going to get re-aggravated again. The, the insult rate, as you say, once the insult rate gets back up to where it, where it was before, you're just going to have the same problem. And this is right. why a lot of athletes have the same groin issues, the same back stuff over and over and over again, because they get treated. They'll reduce what I call their training load or their insult rate. And then they you know just kind of go back to it and then eventually just pops back. So whether you're a coach or you're, you're a physician, you need to be addressing, identifying and addressing both the internal and the external causative influences to that case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think there's a huge advantage in business there for people that can, if you just in your mind, get the idea that the last thing you'll do is change the, the inputs of the training load. You have like, it's people always say, Oh, you got to think outside the box. I'm like, Let's think with inside the box this time. Like, let's assume for a second you you cannot change training loads. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying for for this exercise, just picture a situation where that this well, person cannot reduce. So they have a comp coming up. Yeah, there you go. And and in fact, they're going to have to go at an intensity that exceeds their current uh, amount, right? What do you do then, and how do you manage it then? Uh, I think that those challenges, those mental hurdles, will make you a better 
a better provider as we go on. But Rich, uh, I don't want to get distracted by too much here because I, I know that we can go down 11,000 different paths with you. Um, but one thing I would love to cover is, you know, I think you agreed, we got to have this encyclopedic knowledge of exercise and sometimes in, integrating an exercise you never would have integrated before just because you saw it used somewhere, or a better stimulus is one of the great things. But a lot of this comes back to fundamental movements, right? Fundamental movements of can this person stabilize? Fundamentally, can you know, do they have multiple strategies to stabilize their spine? Fundamentally, can they do a cross-call pattern? Fundamentally, can they, you know, tie their their scapula and their opposite hip together? Like these are basics of movement, right? Um, I know that you have put together a course, uh, the DNS, is it DNS for DNS for strength training? What do you call it? Yeah, so it used to be DNS weightlifting, two different words. Okay. It was a little confusing okay. because weightlifting is a sport and yep. weightlifting is an activity, lifting of weights. Um, and that one was just, I think, a little bit too much information. And by a little bit, I just mean way too much information in three days. It was probably five days of material crammed into three. That's so good. what I've done is I've actually divided it into um, now there's DNS strength training one, two, and three, and they sort of dovetail um, with some of the other exercise courses that we offer, but it's designed for strength training professionals or medical professionals that actually do stuff in the weight room. So, you know, I'll be at, um, actually I'll be Knocking. in your hometown. You're telling I'll me that in. there are people who want to blend the medical side with the strength side. Yeah, I think there's a business there that could be could be looked at. There's there's some value to that. I'm going to look into it. Yeah, because I'll, I'll be at the, the yeah. UFC Performance Institute's um, March 4th through the 6th doing that class. And that class is interesting because it goes into a lot of the fundamentals of DNS, which stands for Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to um, rehabps.com. Um, they've been a humongous influence to me clinically, and they've been a humongous influence to me um, and how I assess athletes, how I treat athletes, cueing, programming, all the things. I mean, I'm I'm training for that kettlebell thing we were mentioning before we got on. Uh, Sinister was 100 swing, single arm swings with a 106, 106 pound kettlebell, and then also 10 Turkish getups with a 106. Well, the way that I stabilize for this, the patterns I'm trying to use, the programming that I'm doing it, all of it is influenced by DNS. So this class is designed to sort of like give that information that might've taken me over 10 years to figure out to give that information to strength coaches and medical providers so that they're going to be able to cue the athletes to stabilize better or move better, whether it's good, you know, shoulder pattern or whether it's a good trunk stability pattern, whatever the case may be, that class is for it. And this one, the intro class, we do mostly sagittal plane movements, which is the vast majority of weightlifting anyways. So we go, we'll do hinging, we'll do squatting, we'll do pressing, pulling. It's all bilateral and symmetrical. Um, it's a great class. So it's a lot of fun. And then we, there's a second one that gets it outside of the coronal plane and the trans, sorry, outside of the sagittal plane into the coronal and the transverse plane, gets into asymmetrical unilateral loading um, and, and a lot more sort of complex into the oblique slings and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's a ton of fun. And then I guess to finish the loop here, the third one is really all about mastering integration. So that one, we get into more complex stuff when you're talking about um, cardiovascular loading and moving at the same time and braced mm. uh, loaded respiration where you're like doing heavy, heavy, heavy carries, but you still have to breathe. 
Um, and then we get into more programming stuff. And that's really about um, actually sitting there and, and integrating DNS exercises with traditional strength training. So that's where we, we really try to work on. Our, we're watching somebody move. We, can, we, can the people properly identify movement dysfunction and then properly um, you know, pick the exercise, prescribe and dose the exercises to actually make the corrections. So they need to be able to like, okay, someone's spinal extensors are cranked down on the squat. All right, well, what are the cues you can use? What are the DNS exercises that you can use? And the goal is for anyone that gets certified in this, they'll be able to actually do these things real time right in the weight room, whether you're a clinician or a, a coach. It's a, it's a great class because I think personally that DNS is the best out there in terms of improving movement quality. That's awesome. Let's go back. Uh, I got, I, I wonder, so you were training athletes since what would you say? Like 2000, 1998, 2000, around there, you're starting to tr- coach athletes at a collegiate level, right? And yeah. So 98, yeah, 98, I, I was like unofficially coaching. I was coached by Judd Logan. Um, we had a really, really big team. And so some of the upperclassmen would be in charge of actually coaching the athletes in the lower levels. I mm. wasn't like in full control of those athletes. I was just kind of watching, cueing, you know, coaching them in their throwing sessions, helping them in the weight room, that kind of a thing. But I wasn't like writing full programs. Well, let me get phase, to my question. I, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I, so I'm just picturing there you are like 2000 and, uh, and you weren't, as I understand it, you were not on a clinical path then. you were fully coaching. Zero, you no, no, you did not nope. have an eye on chiropractic, but at some point, when did you, were you already a clinician when you discovered DNS or sought for the or were introduced to it for the first time, or were you still in the coaching phase? No, no, no. I um I was early in the clinical process, so I jumped ship from the strength training world into the medical world in 2007, mm-hmm. and in 2008 is when I was exposed to DNS by Robert Lardner and Brett Winchester. And then that's where I was like, oh, you know, one of the questions that I was trying to answer when I went into the medical field, one of the reasons I went into the medical field was to understand sort of how the core works. And even to this day, (laughs) DNS has given the best explanation of that of any group that I've seen. And so I saw these nodes and then it it sort of got me in there. And then I started taking classes and and studying it. And then... Well, take us back to that, like, psychologically, because I'm just picturing... With your experience, you had to be the top of your class in 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 school at understanding like training methodologies, understanding like how 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 to put load on people, like all those things, right? Like you were yep. a standout star in that, right? And then you go to this DNS class, and I'm sure you're like carrying with you years of experience, tons of knowledge. Uh, you always strike me as a guy that uh, is up late studying the notes and looking into the research articles and all this stuff. Like you went into that class with a ton of information, what was it like when they started presenting some info? Were you just a like, no way this stuff doesn't work. These guys are goofballs. B. Oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. C like they better prove it to me or D. Oh my God, I need to throw away everything I've been, I've been using up to this point. Uh, like what was the, what was, what stands out as your experience that first time you actually got the core core message of DNS, not the core muscle, uh, message, yeah, just the intended. core idea. 
Yeah. So my first encounter with the notes, I just kind of eye rolled at it because it was, you know, a bunch of baby pictures. And I was like, this is bullshit. Like, this is the dumbest stuff I've I ever seen. That, the first time I ever went on the website, it was like kids in diapers. I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, I, this, this is disturbing. I don't want to learn this. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's, it's, it was not interesting to me, to be honest with you, but I had a lot of trust in Brett Winchester and, Robert Lardner and they sort of were just like, no, 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 just look through it. I'm like, okay, fine. So then I came across a slide that sort of showed a diagram of, of stability, like the trunk and the abdominal wall and the diaphragm. And I started reading into that. And prior to that, I had read yoga books and singing books and Pilates and anything I get my hands on, on how to stabilize correctly. And none of them made, I didn't think, I didn't think any of them had it sort of dialed in. And so when I was reading that, I was like, okay, this is kind of making more sense. And then finally, when I took the first class, the way that they were explaining it to me, it was just like, that's it. That's, that makes perfect sense. Cause they gave the best explanation of intra-abdominal pressure of anybody. So you've had, you have sort of like the McGill brace version. Um, then you have like, you know, the Paul Hodges stuff, you know, you've got all these different versions of it, but to me, if you're stabilizing really, really well, you're maximally leveraging intra-abdominal pressure. And they explained it really, really well. And so, you know, after I was encouraged to just keep with it and keep reading the notes, when I actually got into the class, it really was more of a, wow, this shit's amazing. And I was able to sort of see beyond the baby exercises. And even today when I teach, one of my first couple slides is like, what is DNS, right? And I, and I make the point that DNS is not the baby exercise you know, system. It's actually the most comprehensive explanation of movement and function that I've ever seen that appreciates the full impact neurology has on those processes. But we use, you know, babies for all kinds of reasons as sort of like this model of the muscle synergy, you know, for proper joint positioning, all this kind of stuff. So you have to be able to like somehow, you know, get through the baby exercises to actually see the real gold that DNS offers, the strength training world or the the rehab world, and that is the 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 profound neurology and the the movement assessment and the you know just the 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 crazy awareness of just movement dysfunction that they're able to identify. It's great. What, what was your first like uh, blown away by the application of it? Like, did you know Brett always tells the story of he's like the first time he did a DNS class and he said he'd been struggling with shoulder issues for three yes, years and also. Disability felt like it got glued back onto his thorax, um, either with yourself or applying it to an athlete. Did you have anything where you're like, oh my God, this is the answer I've been searching for for years or just absolutely blown away by the application? Not just the slides uh, and the explanation. You know, intradominal pressure is a great thought, but it's an even more amazing um, outcome. Like when you see it actually occur, you're like, holy shit, like what just happened? Yeah, it was that. So for me, I've got all kinds of fun back injuries just that I got from training. And at the time that I took my first DNS class, I don't think I had done lower body training in probably two years. Um, oh yeah. You were, I, track, I, you were a track athlete? I was a thrower. So I had, I'm a thrower with a long torso. Oh, well, you only use your arms for throwing. That's fine then. It's that's fine. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't use your core. Yeah. And I'm, things. Yeah, and I'm below average talent. And I was trying to compete with, I was training with five Olympians at the time. So <laughs> the, the quality of like, who's, I mean, I was the, I won two national championships and I was definitively the fourth best guy on my team. So I got my <laughs> ass kicked every day 
And, you know, in college, I was just wrecking people. But, you know, I had a, a four-time Olympian, a three-time Olympian, a two-time Olympian, and a one-time Olympian. So, you know, I was just pushing my body. And I just beat my body up. And that's that's fine. Comes with the process. And I would do it all over again if you gave me the chance. But it was in the DNS class where I was able to sort of actually feel what it felt like to pressurize my abdomen. And I was like, oh, holy shit. That feels better. That feels more stable. That feels more stiff. That doesn't hurt. And then from that, I was able to kind of start getting back into lifting. And now, I mean, now I'm doing crazy, stupid stuff. I just did 18 Turkish get-ups today with a, a 48 kilo bell with zero back tightness. And all of it comes from just a, a, a continually deeper understanding of the things that I was exposed to on that in that first class. That's awesome. so for, sure, for sure, it's me. For sure, it's me and pressurizing, learning how to sort of essentially learn how to brace correctly. Yeah. And I wasn't even doing it right back then. I was just doing it better than I was doing it before. And since yeah. then, you know, now it's, you know, it's 14 years later, 15 years later. When we had dinner, it was me, you, Dan, and you remember we were sitting with Greg Rose and not to name drop, but the guy is amazing to me. So I always talk about him. Quite. Yep. Great uh, guy too. Yeah, and fantastic guy. Great stories inside and outside of, of rehab and everything. Amazing uh, storyteller. Amazing storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> so he has a great saying. He said, uh, what he, he said, golf pros won't believe how much physical training can can work for a golfer until it works for them. At which point they'll believe that every golfer needs this. And it's like, yeah, that's what I've been saying to you, dude, for like three years, like trying to work with your golfers, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's a cool idea, but until it works for me, it doesn't really work. And then when it does work for them, they're like, oh my God, why isn't everybody doing this? Why isn't every one of my yeah. players doing this? And you're like, well, great question. I've been trying to you know, push that rock. That's, I mean, that's basically, that's basically um, stabilizing the way that we describe in DNS. I mean, I, and, and what's really tough with this, you know, in, in Greg's example, he's proposing a completely different paradigm. He's saying like, hey, you don't need to just go to the range, do some twisting and then start swinging. He's saying, hey, well, let's figure out, well, what is their internal rotation, external rotation of their hips? What is their thoracic mobility? What is their, you know, the stiffness of the spine kind of stuff? And how does that impact the swing? It's brilliant. It's actually, and, and he couldn't be a better guy to actually execute that. So, I mean, he's all, all the credit to Greg. But my problem is I'm saying like, I'll have somebody come in and I, I see, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I love it, but I see basically the, the extreme ends. So like elite athletes and very, very, very complex cases, you know, a lady that came in yesterday had done PT, I think four different bouts. She's done injections. She's done ablations. She's done all these things. And then I like her problem is how she stabilizes. And so if I, if I'm not delicate with the language or I don't explain what I'm going to do very, very well, she's just like, yeah, dude, I've done core stuff. Like I don't, I, they've done core stuff at PT every time and it doesn't work. So I, I'm it's the DNS model is so much more hands-on, so much more detailed. And, and with these complex cases, the devil's in the details. You can't just give someone a side bridge, you know, the McGill big three and a lumbar adjustment and expect the lady that's had multiple surgeries and has done three nerve ablations that that's going to fix her. And that's where the DNS stuff comes in really well, but it's hard because they've had core stuff in air quotes many, many times with the chiropractors they've worked with, the PTs and their and their their personal trainers. Like, yeah, yeah, I've done core stuff. But then yeah. I have to go in and sort I've of, done a bunch of planks before, like for a right. full minute. 
Well, the other funny one that's so if we could get really into the weeds of the mechanics, if you want, but just because someone has a strong core doesn't mean that they have a stable core. Um, those two terms are oftentimes conflated. So I'll have somebody come in. I don't use the term you're, you're unstable, um, nor do I get into the nuance of, you know, the difference between stiffness and motor control, but I'll have an athlete come in. Like I had a level 10 gymnast come in that got taken out of the sport because of how she stabilizes her spine. And, you know, anybody would think like this girl was a level 10 athlete, a level 10 gymnast when she was 11 years old. So she's an elite athlete and how she stabilized actually is what sort of got her out of the sport. But no one would say that she has a weak core, right? So that's a very broad like application of the term. And it's like, yeah. well, when we're in with, with DNS, and I think this is one of the only groups that really goes into this, we care about the actual strategy you're using to stabilize the core. So it's a very qualitative you know, influenced or not, no, a qualitative biased program. So if I'm watching someone do a plank, I don't care if they can hold it for two minutes. I care, well, what is the strategy that they're using to hold it? And that's the difference. So a lot of times if you're just doing a side bridge, well, there's a million ways that you can do a side bridge. There's a million ways you can do all these classic exercises, you know, triple flexion holds or bird dogs or whatever. And, and with DNS, we get into this in this class a lot. It really is about the nuance of how are they stabilizing? How are they bracing? For me, that was eye-opening when I was at that first DNS class and I'm going like, holy shit, like, you mean I can't just tense everything? There's actually some some skill there to the brace, and that was like just an eye-opening epiphany moment for me, and it had nothing to do with the baby exercises. We just happened to use the baby exercises as a way to sort of retrain these things. DNS really is about the neurology and, and improving the quality of somebody's movement. That's awesome. I think you're. This is music to the listeners' ears because, like, yeah. This I mean, we talked about this before we started recording, but this there's this ridiculous wall. It's a paper wall between strength, uh, like in professional athletes or even collegiate, right? Like between the strength training uh, aspects of the strength coaches and whatnot, and between and the training room. Like it, for the most part, those two are not a blended. Uh, they don't blend together yet they are, that's a spectrum, you know, like you, you, you don't have, an, there's not an end to one and a clear delineation of the other. And there are a lot of athletes, I think that should be working with both of those entities concurrently. Like, you know, like, Hey, sometimes they need a little less of the training room and a little more of the strength. And then sometimes it goes the opposite way, depending on where we are in the season, depending on my history, depending on any injuries I've had, not just injuries, in the last month, I'm saying injuries over like your lifetime that are affecting you up to that point, like that gymnast you're talking about. And sometimes therapy or, or treatment or whatever you want to call the, the medical side is the stimulus that helps them understand. You know, it's, it's just a full regression of a of a of an exercise is sometimes get on the table and get some, you know, adjust their back, get their freaking joints moving. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, your body you know, the, the motor control system remembers all those nerve endings and what they do and what the role is, you know? Anyways, I know we could go on and on and on for that, but I got a, one last question I want to ask you here. Uh, so you, you discovered DNS, you weren't quite uh, treating patients, but you, you're blown away by it. If we go back to your early days as a coach, so let's say 2002, right? I think you at that point would have been fully in coaching and you could even tell your 
superiors that you were the one coaching, right? Like you didn't have to hide anything. Uh, For sure. <laughs> it wasn't just, hey, Rich is a warm body with a pulse. Come on over here. You're, you're the yep. assistant to the assistant coach. Um, 2002, what would, what would have been maybe the top three things you would have thought about training wise for an athlete? And then if we move 10 years ahead, you, you know, 2012, you've been in practice for a year or so, what would you have thought there? And now in 2022, where are your thoughts with, uh, you know, what are the top three things you do for an athlete to get them strong? So if our goal was to get somebody strong back then, when you're only a coach, what'd you know? When you're early, early clinician, what'd you know? And now, what do you know now? Yeah, I think that. <clears throat> I this mean, could, back, by the way, know, be another four and a half hours of podcast, right? But sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Tight. No, yeah. So, I, I mean, back in the day, it was really just about hitting it hard and and being consistent with the training. I was I was a little bit, you know, OCD sort of an idealist, so I was always trying to like, you know, hammer out and 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 hit. The same, you know, if the workout said, you know, you know, three sets of 10, I'm doing three sets of 10, you know, and going as hard as I can. And there was very little um, tolerance for breaking whatever the program said. And there was very little tolerance for not pushing as hard as possible at all times. If, you know, and back then there was really no appreciation for any sort of the stuff that, that Greg Rose and uh, Greg Cook have sort of brilliantly injected into the industry. And that is... I was not assessing, you know, my hip mobility or my dorsiflexion mobility or, you know, my trunk stability or anything. I was just training. And so there wasn't, you know, as much, you know, understanding of like um, the, the functional blocks or the functional prerequisites that go into execute a movement properly. So back then it was just hitting it hard. So if I want to get them super, super strong, we're doing lots of Olympic lifting. We're doing more high intensity work. So that's not the I'm doing obviously lots of volume, but really emphasizing the intensity. So I'm I'm going in and, and using what in the strength training world we call a max effort method. So a lot of times I'm going in like, okay, today we're going up, we're gonna hit a max set of three in the back squat or whatever. Fast forward, you know, to when I you know graduated school and now I'm I have an appreciation because now SFMA, well, no, SFMA just I went to the first SFMA actually. Nice. Um so, yeah, so I took TPI when it first came out. That was kind of the, uh, the concept. Gray Cook had already come out with balanced bodies or athletic bodies and balance or something like that, I think maybe. But the point is the FMS had already come out. Um, SFMA was in its early stages. Uh, TPI was also in its infancy. But those are systems that sort of showed me that, oh, wait a minute, there are functional prerequisites to be executing a movement correctly. So then I went in and I, I, I would now probably be going in and doing a functional evaluation on these athletes to make sure that they can actually move correctly. So that when they're strong, they're expressing good patterns. They're not just moving heavy weight, right? Because the quality of their movement is going to have a humongous influence on their actual performance, right? So mm -hmm. that's probably one of the big things. Um, I also had been exposed to DNS at that point. So then I would be now adding in a lot more functional corrective stuff. I would be cueing them how to brace differently. Um, I would be adding in a lot of, you know, what I'll say capacity work. So not just, okay, can you stabilize correctly? But like, okay, now I need to make sure that you can stabilize, you know, for longer periods of time. So I'd be throwing in core stuff at the end in ways that I wouldn't before. Before it was just like sit-ups and twists 
you know, and, and I had more of the mentality of like, oh, if you want to get your core strong, just squat, which doesn't really work. Um, and then now I would say the, the biggest thing is I'm, I have a much better appreciation for the process. So back in my, my early days, I was going after anything with everything with max intensity. And now, you know, I don't, my line is you intensity is not a replacement for time and consistency. So I, I understand that like the body can only adapt so quickly and so the the timeline of what I would be trying to do with an athlete is going to be different. I would be loading them more with repeated effort stuff, repeated effort method, depending on the sport, of course. So, you know, they might be doing a higher amount of volume, but the relative intensity might be a little bit less. You're still going to get the adaptation to the nervous system, but you're doing so in a way that's less likely to actually injure them. Uh, the reason for that is, it, you know, I've just, I've thought about this a lot. But training is all about pushing an athlete as hard as you can without abstaining permanent damage to their passive tissues. So the moment you tear a labrum, the moment you say, herniate Say that disc, again real quick. Say the, that part again, because I, I think it's yep. really important. Like that was a, I have a feeling it was about 19 years of experience yeah. processing yeah, this was the, the So this line, this line came, I did, there's a humongous um, strength training conference called the Swiss Conference that was actually here in town this year. And that's where, you know, I think I had three or 4,000 pound back squatters in my client, in my, in my lecture. And originally I was supposed to be on the impact DNS has on strength training. We later changed it to sort of like mastering the brace. But when I was trying to figure out like, okay, well, DNS is giving you, this is how you're supposed to move. And then you've got strength training, which is just like all about output. How much can you bench? How much can you deadlift? How much can you squat? I realized the difference between the DNS strategy and what we'll just call, you know, maybe the West side strategy or the extension compression stabilizing strategy is they both work. Um, but one of them, the extension compression stabilizing strategy is going to load, overload the passive tissues. So you're more likely to damage a facet you know, get a pars fracture, spondylolisthesis, neuroforaminal stenosis, disc injuries, all those things. And if you want an athlete- Injuries so able, bad, you can't even spell them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so if, if you want an athlete to like achieve maximum physical potential, you need all their passive tissues intact. And if we're pushing athletes too hard in the beginning and then they damage a passive tissue, you're lowering the ceiling of their possibility every time they damage a passive tissue. So the line was training is all about pushing the athlete as hard as possible without abstaining permanent damage to a passive tissue. And that's really the limit there. So I damaged all kinds of passive tissues when I was an athlete. I've got facet stuff. I've got lots of disky things going on. And so, yeah, I've been able to compensate. You know, I'm, you know, doing well training for that sinister stuff. But had I, you know, I would much rather be going after the sinister thing with all of my spine fully intact and no actual, you know, damage to the discs. I'd be way better off. So training is really all about that. So if you use the max effort method, you are putting the soft tissues, the passive tissues at a higher risk for damage. If you're using a repeated effort method, I think you can still in most cases, assuming that that athlete does not have to express maximum force output, 
So if they're a power lifter, Olympic weightlifter, CrossFitter, those athletes need to spend some time doing maximum effort work. But I would still in those bias their training towards repeated effort method so that I'm able to sort of stimulate the adaptations that they need, but in a way that is not putting their passive tissues at much of a risk, right? That's going to be one of the major things to answer your, your question that I'm doing now that I might not have done in 2011. Even though I was concerned about the quality of their movements, I had an appreciation for functional prerequisites for movements. I wasn't, I was still okay with going after max effort all the time. So, you know, now I'm worried about more the repeated effort method. And then the other thing that I'm doing now, the last two things, I guess, one is I'm willing to change the exercises and not squat the athlete or, you know, do an explosive swing instead of a a clean. Whereas before I was like, no, 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 you got to do the cleans. You got to do the snatches. Now there are, there are times where they have to for sure, but I'm more willing to change those. And then the last thing is I've, I've gained a much better appreciation for the, the conditioning part of strength and conditioning coach. Most people, they bias the strength coach portion of the strength and conditioning coach. So if you were, I, I, I think if you were to just quiz every strength coach in the country, they would do much better on the strength part of that. If you start getting into metabolic conditioning and aerobic conditioning and all that kind of stuff, they're not going to do very well at all. Well, I've, you know, going through doing CrossFit for you know now 15 years. Um, there's a wonderful group called OPEX. That's a great group for uh, personal trainers and, and coaches. I've learned a ton from them, you know, going through a lot of their stuff. And so now I realize that as a strength coach, Unless that athlete performs in a sport that has to do, you know, squatting and deadlifting and stuff like that, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting and CrossFit, you're training them to do something other than lift weights. And so now I would be emphasizing a lot more of the, you know, application stuff and not so much like, okay, let's take this, you know, female soccer player and make sure she can squat double body weight. I don't give a shit. So now it's like, okay, she needs to be able to express that pattern, but I want her to have the capacity to be able to use that strength on the field for 90 minutes, right? So then you would have, you know, pure strength training. Then you would have sort of like the transition application work, the conditioning piece. And then you've got sort of like the skill on field or on the court work. Well, when I was a strength coach, I was basically emphasizing the in the weight room stuff and not realizing like, well, no, that's just really, that's like tertiary to the process, which is so weird for me to think about that, but that's tertiary to the process. Now in 2022, I would be emphasizing more, you know, the application stuff. I would be doing more repeated effort method stuff and sort of, it's just building on what I learned in Cairo school, but now just understanding that, the, the the process takes time and, and you can't really rush the process. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I was remembering when I was, I, I competed Olympic weightlifting in college and we had a coach named Steve Goff, who was just an amazing, amazing man. And I remember looking at one of our super heavy lifters and he's like, Hey, you need to get in, uh, you need to do some cardio, which, which was like, the most odd thing to ever hear out of that coach's mouth in the world. But what he realized is the guy just couldn't recover in between max effort sets as fast as he needed to. And he's like, yeah, you had to do something a couple days a week. And it was like that, that quick snapshot of, Oh my God, this guy is a world 
world-class level Olympic weightlifting coach. And he's not, he's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like he's, he's, he's clear on what this athlete needs at that moment, you know, like, and it was just crazy to me, which was at the time, not knowing what you just explained and, you know, not knowing enough of the variance of these different athletic needs, but just that I was like, what? Like nobody has talked about doing any sort of quote unquote cardio in the last year I've been in this weight room. Nobody's ever mentioned that, right? It's almost like scoffed. And he's like, that's what you need. And sure enough, the guy started, I can't remember he did like, I think he did the stadium steps. This is long before uh, stair, stair mills, but he did the stadium steps like four or five rounds twice a week. And sure enough, like he could recover in between about three months later, he could recover in between sets. His training became better, blah, 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 blah. And he saw his, his PRs go up. So it was just, it was just a crazy thing. I think I actually think a lot of the research out there on rest times yeah. is, is heavily biased for strength athletes that have very, very bad fitness capacity. So mm-hmm. if you go to Westside Barbell and you're having them do, you know, all right, you're going to do triples at 90% in the squat. And then we're going to like see, all right, you're doing one minute rest. You're doing three minute rest. You're doing five minute rest. They're all going to respond well to five minute rest. If you then go down to Mayhem CrossFit, you know, where Rich Froning trains with all those elite athletes and you do the same study down there, they're going to be able to, you know, repeat the, their efforts at a much, much lower rest time. And so it's really dependent on the fitness level of the athlete. And so not going into the CrossFit um, rabbit hole, but like understanding the role that general fitness and, you know, fitness capacity plays in on even strength athletes is, is, a, is a big deal. And yeah. so that's maybe, you know, what I'm doing now, I'm adding in more metabolic stuff and, and doing lots of other things, even with power athletes that normally I wouldn't even touch because I'm thinking like, oh, no, 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 you're just a, a thrower or, you know, you're just a, a power lifter. You don't need to do that stuff. Now we could get into like, you know, dicing it out and how do you actually, you know, program it for the whole course of the year. And, you know, in certain parts of the year, we're going to do a lot more of it. In other parts of the year, we do zero of it, but I have a much better appreciation for that piece of it. Like your coach was saying, like, okay, you need to do some, some cardio stuff because that has a huge influence on their ability to tolerate training and to actually, you know, train effectively. Yeah. It's funny. I think a lot of people now we scoff at things and then it's like, well, you know, the opposite was, was true for a long time. Uh, it used to be commonplace for, for football players to run, you know, long, slow distance, right? Like I remember reading Ronnie Lott's book about when he was with the uh, San Francisco 49ers and the guy was a maniac. He was a linebacker. He could, you know, blow anybody up over, over uh, whatever a, a, a eight yard run and and his coach was like had a golf cart and they're running up and down the hills of san francisco for like he said four to six miles it's like <laughs> what you know we, we laugh like oh my god that's so inappropriate because we thought back then everybody should do you know long slow distance until proven otherwise and now we bias towards this pendulous effect of hey everybody needs to do strength 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 and it's like yeah except we need to approach like both systems both methods have their place and figure it out for your athlete, you know? Yeah. I think that there's, I'm not sure I would be prescribing two mile runs for alignment, but like I'd be doing a whole hell of a lot of metabolic capacity work and maybe it's, you know, 15 seconds of work, 45 seconds of rest, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. 
Um, could even but how be about 10 this? seconds like, of work. Analyzing their needs, assessing the athlete, and designing a program based upon those needs. Shocking, yeah, Rich. Like, crazy it's, hard, it's hard to do. People don't do it. Like the way that I try to, when I'm teaching programming, you basically have to look at what are the needs of the sport or what are the, the requirements for the sport. And then you do your functional testing to figure out like, well, what is the athlete bringing to the, to the sport? Right. So they might, there's functional prerequisites that they need to hit. There's also sort of performance prerequisites. It might be squatting yeah. a certain amount. It might be a mile time or whatever. And then you look at that and then there's your gap. And then, then you have to close that gap with programming. So to just go in there and do zero movement assessment stuff I, is, is to me is a little bit sort of lazy and you're going to have a, you're not going to get the same results. Um, and then to also just go straight into it and not have a measured the starting point, like, well, where are they at? You know, like, you know, what is their, you know, depending on what it is like, okay, the, uh, you know, 50 Turkish getups for time. How long does that take them if they need to do these things? Whatever the case may be, it could be a sprinting and exercise, it could be a vertical jump, it could be a mile run, it could be yeah. threshold, whatever it is. If you're not measuring those, then you're not going to know, oh, these are the things that, that that person needs to be doing to get them to where they're going faster. You're just sort of like walking through the woods and just taking whichever path comes up to you and you're sort of just sort of guessing it. So I think that right. doing that, what does the sport demand? What does the athlete bring to the sport? Close that gap is kind of the the main goal. Yeah. Yeah. One interesting case about that is like UFC athletes or, or mixed martial artists, incredible intensity for a few minutes and a relatively short gap. So a three minute round followed by a 30 second break times three is, uh, you know, when you're, it, it's, it's an incredible load, but that's obviously very different than a, a collegiate member of a crew team, you know, where it's like sustained yeah. hard effort, both of which would would make you cry because they're both yeah, yeah. incredibly difficult situations, but understanding like which, which one needs what it's great. So speaking of UFC, uh, if people want to take that DNS strength, uh, course from you, it's coming out here to Las Vegas. That's where I'm based, but Las Vegas, you're going to have it at the UFC performance Institute. What are the dates on that again? That's it's, it's Saturday through Monday. So it's March 2nd through the 4th. And right now, I think through February 1st is the early bird discount. So it's still, it's still cheap before it sort of um, the price goes up, but it's a great course. It's sort of a passion project. It's, it's perfect for anybody that uses weightlifting. So if you're a clinician that wants to know more about the movements and understand some of the, the mechanics and the neurology and the fundamentals behind movement, these principles that sort of influence movement, it's a good course. Or if you're a, a strength coach and you want to understand a little bit more of the, the rehabby side of it, because we cover the full spectrum that you mentioned earlier on in the podcast here from, you know, like the rehab part of that spectrum all the way into the actual performance part. So there's always a, a you know, I'll usually take an athlete and, and sort of push them in one of the movements and just see kind of like, well, how are they breaking down and where? And then we talk about like, you know, how would you correct this? And what are the important factors and all that kind of good stuff? I love it. Where can people sign up for that if they're interested? Because it sounds like a hell of a course. Um, yeah. So it would be athletes-enhancements.com slash courses. Um, or if you just go to the main website, it's just kind of right there. Um, there's also a link to it off of my Instagram account. So there's a link tree there that I think the top click is going to be courses. So that's at athlete enhancement. Um, just go there, click on the, we'll throw, the link we'll throw those in the show line. notes below this episode. So if anybody needs it, they can click there. Um, 
yeah, this is this has been great, Rich. I think uh, I, I don't. The, my only regret in this conversation is I should have allowed uh, at least four days to get through all the points with you. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure you'd have good listening for uh, four days worth of uh, you and I chatting, but it's always fun. Yeah. Listen, my you know my my wife and my kids listen, so there's three listeners right there. And yeah, we got we got, yeah. I'll get my wife to listen. We're good. We'll exactly. Have, we'll have We're gonna four hit double digits here. Amazing. If we can just get our dogs to to grab a set of headphones, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Rich. I really appreciate the time today. Um, uh, and one more time, can you throw out your Instagram handle so people can connect with you there, especially if they, they want to work with you or take one of your courses? Um, it's athlete enhancement is Instagram. And then uh, the website is www.athlete-enhancement.com. Fantastic. Well, on behalf of Doc, Dr. Richard Ohm, this is Dr. Josh Saturday saying, go out there, maximize your license, and live the life you dream of. Thanks so much, Rich. No problem. Thanks again. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's Clinic gymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.